Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the gift and blessing of this day, for the beginning of this season of Lent, Lord God, this time where we can stop and we can consider, Lord, where our lives are, where our hearts lie, where our allegiances are focused, Lord. Give us this opportunity today, Lord God, to have self-examination. And by your holy grace, Lord, lead us to repentance and to forgiveness of sin. We pray, Lord God, that you would do this great and mighty work in us this day, that you would give me your words to proclaim to your people, Lord God, and that you would place your word upon our lips, that we might be quick to give an answer which points to you. Lord God, guide and direct us through this service today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Well, I brought with me this super high-tech calculator. Right? This calculator is awesome because it has a battery backup and a little solar panel, right? So it can work like in any condition. The problem is, what does a calculator do? It calculates, it adds, it subtracts, it divides, it multiplies, it gets square roots, does your taxes. But I haven't seen this calculator do any calculations since I've been looking at it. <laughs> right? It, it's supposed to do it, isn't it? <laughs> so you're telling me this thing is called a calculator and it doesn't do anything on its own? That's ridiculous. It depends on somebody from the outside reaching in and pushing its buttons and telling it what it needs to do and guiding it to do those things. And then it puts out the quotient or the sum. Or That is crazy. Crazy, right? And it leads us immediately to the Council of Carthage in the year 418, which I know you were going there, so I had to cut you off earlier. <laughs> All right, the Council of Carthage. Anyone know where Carthage is? Carthage? Any Carthaginians out there? North Africa. North Africa. There we go. North Africa. Thank you. So in the year 418, they had a council there. And there was a debate between these two bishops. One was an African bishop named Augustine of Hippo. You might know his mother, Mrs. Potamus. Right? She was quite well known in town. So Augustine of Hippo on one side and Pelagius on the other side. And Pelagius is from Britain. And they argued about original sin, and they argued about grace, and they argued about many different things. Let's talk about Pelagius' position first. He argued that original sin did not taint human nature. Now, original sin is the sin that has been inherited, um, according to church teaching, from Adam and Eve, right? It's coming down to us. And so Pelagius said that original sin did not taint human nature, and that mortal will is still capable of choosing good or evil without special divine aid. So that means, in plain terms, that everyone is capable of doing the right thing all the time. Right? You've realized the rub in this, right? There we go. Oh, uh-oh. Um, so the human will is still capable of choosing good or evil without special divine aid. God then gives to Christians, once they have chosen him out of their free will... Uh, the grace to assist him in his work, but it really, when it boils down to it, it's down to the person doing the right thing all the time. Now, when Pelagianism is taken to its like logical conclusion, 
the inference is that if we are to be saved, we better start working. Right? Because if your righteousness is up to you, then who's responsible? You are. Exactly. So that was, that's kind of the logical conclusion. Pelagius would never argue it that um, directly, um, but that's where some of his, that's where it was taken in terms of that, that logic, that logical process. Now, we'll talk at the end about Augustine, but right now let's interject our gospel passage for today. The reading for this Sunday in Lent is quite a doozy, isn't it? I mean, this battle between Jesus and Satan out in the wilderness. Right in our passage brings up the reference that this all takes place right after, immediately after his baptism. So remember his baptism, that amazingly beautiful and profound event where Jesus comes up from the water and what happens? Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, that's right, and a voice comes from heaven saying, you, this is my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Right, we've got the pleasure and the identifying of the son by the father. We've got the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the son of God there in the water, the Holy Trinity all there right before our eyes. How could it get any better? Well, the Holy Spirit, the dove, shows us just how it can get better. There is nothing like celebrating your awesome baptism and kicking off your ministry, like taking a 40-day all-inclusive vacation out in the wilderness. And by all-inclusive, we mean no meals, right? And being tempted by the devil that entire time. So the dove leads Jesus into this place of denial and temptation. It's there he fasts for 40 days, which is a long time, right? Honestly, yeah. Um, But the challenge is heightened because for those 40 days, he's not only just like praying and contemplating, he's being tempted by the devil for 40 days. Hungry, coming off the high point of being baptized, and here he is now led by God himself into the wilderness to be tempted. Now this is clearly drawing a parallel between the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that the Israelites did when they refused when they refused to enter the promised land on the first try when they had been given that opportunity by God and then they were forced to wander around in the wilderness this um, connects to that because Israel during that time faced many temptations and failed at almost all of them as well and so here we have Jesus now spending 40 days to replicate that 40 years and being faced with temptations in the wilderness. We have three defined temptations from the many that he faced during that time in the wilderness. Now, these trials appear to take place at the end of the 40-day period of fasting. If I had a choice, I'd want, the, I'd want them front-loaded, right? Yeah. Get it over with early, like just pull the Band-Aid off, yeah. you know, just do it. Um, but this is at the very end, when the hunger was the greatest... The second verse of our passage introduces the problem. It says, He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. Well, no kidding. Right? I feel like this at lunchtime. I can't imagine what this was like for Jesus. So the devil, knowing the depth of Jesus' hunger, presents him with his first temptation. And what is that temptation? Bread. Food. Exactly. 
The way he presents it, it's interesting. Listen to this. Because the devil has a way of undermining almost everything in these temptations. He says, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Right? If you are. If you are. We hear this same language from Satan in the, uh, uh, the account of the temptation in the Garden of Eden in the fall. Do you guys remember that? When he says, Did God really say to you, Right, that questioning that causes you to, that undermines truth, that's what Satan likes to do. So when you hear that line of reasoning, maybe in yourself or in your mind or um, from somebody else, like it's time to take a step back and think about what's being said. Temptation is there. That if Jesus were to do this, what Satan has challenged him to do, if he were to do it, Satan might be convinced Right, because he's saying, if you're the Son of God, do this. Right, so maybe Jesus could say, like, oh goodness, if I do this, if I make this bread, he'll be convinced and know that I'm the Son of God, and I'll be full. Right, it's a win-win situation. Everything will be good, right? Wrong. Right, this is that's how my logic works, but that's not how Jesus's logic works. Because in doing that, he would be showing that he didn't trust in the Lord to provide for him. Because who had taken him out in the wilderness? God. God had led them there. And if Jesus took events into his own hand and said, I'm going to just change the script here. Like, that would not have been following the will of God. It would have been showing that he didn't believe that God could care for his needs. That he didn't believe that God knew what he needed. That he didn't trust in God. This would be to succumb to the same temptation to doubt God that the Israelites fell to when they wandered in the wilderness and wondered if God had taken them out there to kill them. Remember, the Israelites didn't turn stones into bread. How were they fed? God provided bread from heaven, right? They needed only wait to see the deliverance of the Lord. And time and time again, we see them not trusting Not believing. So the question is, will God provide? Does he care? And Jesus answers this challenge by stating that one does not live by bread alone. There is more to survival than merely food. The second temptation then is presented. The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and tells him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has all been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus has offered all the glory and authority in the world if he will only worship the devil. If he will only leave his trust of the Father, all will be his. Now we see this happen to the Israelites, right? When Moses is up on Mount Sinai, Aaron the priest is down with the people, And they're like, okay, Moses is dead. We know Moses is dead. Um, You know, God's abandoned us. We need to build a calf, right? Beef is the answer. (laughs) And so make us a calf out of gold. And so Aaron, the priest, being a great priest, does the absolute wrong thing, right? And does this for them, and they worship it as their God. They say, this is what brought you out of Egypt. Jesus, though, doesn't fall for this. He knows that to do this will be to deny the Lord. 
And so he responds in faith, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. He knows there is only one object of worship in this world, and that is God himself. He will not settle for anything less. The third temptation comes in the form of being placed on the top of the temple and told to jump so that the Lord will catch him. Now this is, and after doing some research, I found that this was actually the first known marketing campaign for GoPro cameras. (laughs) Right? It was a failed attempt because he didn't actually jump. But yeah, it's interesting what you can find out there on the internet. But really, here's an interesting temptation that is built upon the others, right? Because it depends on somebody who trusts God so much that they will fling themselves to their apparent death, trusting that who will catch them? God. To fall for this temptation means you have to trust in God so much that you'll jump. (coughs) Right? And so Jesus has already articulated that he trusts God to feed him. And he trusts that people live through God. And that the Lord is the only one worthy of faith and worship. And now here the devil argues that if Jesus trusts God so much, he should just jump. Because the Lord will surely catch him. He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Here again we see the return of the if. If you are the Son of God, show me me you're the Son of God. Prove it to me, Jesus. Show me your true identity and I'll believe. Jesus answers this temptation by stating that it is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus then redirects this line of questioning. Right? The question is not whether God will catch you or not. Rather, it is why would you do something stupid just to see if God will protect you? Right? Sometimes we need that clarifying question. Like, should you really try that? Is that the right thing to do? Is that a wise choice? Like, sure, God can catch you, but do you need to jump? Do you need to throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple? To prove to Satan, who's already denied God, that you need that you really are him? No. You don't. That's foolish. Jesus doesn't fall for peer pressure. He doesn't fall for this challenge to jump. Now, if it was us on the pinnacle of the temple, would we have jumped? No! Would we have jumped because we didn't? We would say, do not put the Lord your God to the test? No. Why would we have not jumped? Because we're scared. We're scared. We'd be like, no way are you getting me off that temple. Are you kidding me? I'm afraid of heights. No way. I'm not jumping off of there. And that exactly is the temptation that are the response of Israel in the wilderness. Right? Their response was not one that came out of deep faith, but out of fear. They were afraid. What if God didn't catch us? What if God's not going to be there tomorrow? What if the man has dried up? What if that rock is not going to put out a spring for us anymore? What if God is happy with us today, but tomorrow decides it's starvation time? Right? What if, what if, what if? 
And it was their fear that led them to believe that God had abandoned them and that they were left for dead. And so they rebelled against him and lashed out. The Israelites fell for this fear time and time again. Jesus, in his responses, proved that he was different than anyone else before. He was different than Israel in those 40 years in the wilderness. He's different than us today. He had been baptized, anointed by the Holy Spirit, claimed by God as his beloved son, and now had withstood the temptations of the devil in one-on-one combat. He was now prepared for his ministry. Now, to us, this event is tremendously important because we need a perfect God and Savior. We need a Lord who is without sin to fight for us and to die for us because we've all fallen short. Jesus needed to be the spotless lamb that was offered on our behalf so that our sins could be paid for. We needed Jesus to be faithful where we have failed. In the Council of Carthage, the other side of the debate was led by Augustine of Hippo, who argued that we are people who are tainted by original sin, and that even the good works we do are often done for the wrong reason. So, if according to Pelagius we have like a savings account, kind of witty, huh, right? Savings account. Right, if our salvation can be earned through deposits in this savings account, then um, Augustine argued, well, okay, let's go with that, Pelagius. If you have this savings account, say you put in a good work, maybe you go and care for the orphans. Well, why'd you do it, Pelagius? Why'd you do that good thing? Did you for one millisecond think, well, I hope somebody sees me doing this. Or did you for one second think, I should put this on Facebook? Or did you for one second think, man, I hate these kids? Or did you for one second think, like, this makes me feel good? Was there any moment in that righteous act that you thought about yourself instead of about God? It still is a good thing to do, but you've both made a deposit and a withdrawal from that savings account if anything was done for any reason except for absolute, perfect submission and worship of God. So he argued that if we're always having to save ourselves by doing righteous things, how much do we have to do? How perfectly do they have to be done? And how could anyone ever do it? So Augustine argued that if you were to look at that savings account, In light of the gospel, you would not see how much is lacking, how much you're overdrawn. Rather, one would see paid in full. Because the deposits have all been made by our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was righteous on our behalf, and who has filled up that account to overflowing, so that you and I have a guarantee through faith in him of eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, Mercy never-ending, and hope that cannot be taken from us. Jesus Christ is this gift for us. And because of that, we can then go out into this world and serve people joyfully. 
knowing that we're not trying to fill a bank account. We're not trying to earn our way into a better standing before God. We go out and serve because we have been served. Jesus Christ has come and filled us up and done everything on our behalf. So you and I, when we go out and we feed a person who is hungry, when we care for someone who is lonely, when we reach out to someone who is in need or hurting or sick, we do that not because of what it will earn us, but because Jesus Christ has done that for us. We're like this calculator, capable of great and amazing things, but we require someone to be guiding us and directing us and filling us with the information that we need to go out and do that work. We need someone to be guiding us, to be leading us in our lives and directing us to how we are to serve and what we are to do for this world. May we listen to that guide. And may we go out into this world and do great and glorious, loving things for him. May we feed those who are hungry. May we care for those who are lonely. May we love those who are unloved. May we visit the widows and the orphans, those who are in prisons. May we do it all in Jesus' name, knowing that these things do not save us, but that they are the outpourings of a Christian life, a life that has been redeemed. When we do this, we reveal to the world that we serve a God who cares for those who are on the fringes, who cares for those who are in a place of emptiness and hopelessness, and a God who seeks healing and reconciliation. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you that you are the one, Lord God, who brings us to righteousness. You are the one who has offered yourself for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, that Augustine carried the day. Thank you, Lord God, that uh, we do not live under a theology in which we must earn your love, Lord, or that we must uh, work off our sins. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to follow you. Help us to trust you. Lord, so often we're like those Israelites in the wilderness, unaware of your presence with us, fearful that you have left us, Lord distrustful of your continued provision. We confess this to you, Lord God. We pray that you would forgive us. And Lord, we pray that being forgiven, you would send us out into this world in your power and in humility. Help us, Lord God, to have compassion, to be people of service and generosity, people who see a need and seek to serve in that need. Lord God, and may we be directed by you. May we listen to the guidance of your Holy Spirit. Lord, and that wherever he leads us, may we follow with joy in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.